Welcome to this episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Our episodes come in three different formats. We have our 10-minute lesson series where we take a policy topic and set out the key points that we think people most need to know and understand in about 10 minutes. Our series of interviews then allows us to chat with experts on a wide range of subjects such as housing, children's play, climate action, pensions, data centres and ageing. Our seminar series then provides us with opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations we've had at past events and this is one of those. We held our annual social policy conference on the 16th of November 2022 and it was entitled Towards Wellbeing for All. We were joined on the day by Gabrielle McClough, who's Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. Here you can listen to his paper and also the question and answer session that followed. The links to the videos, wonderful graphics from Philip Barrett and all of the papers are contained in the notes for this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody, you're all very welcome back to the afternoon session of today's annual policy conference for Social Justice Ireland towards well-being for all is our theme today and our first afternoon our first very special guest this afternoon our first speaker is the governor of the central bank gabriel mahalouf uh the governor took up his position on the 1st of september 2019 he chairs the central bank commission is a member of the governing council of the european central bank a member of the european systemic risk board and is ireland's alternate governor at the international monetary fund before joining the central bank gabriel was secretary to the new zealand treasury and the government's chief economic and financial advisor between 2011-2019 during his time as secretary he led reviews of new zealand's three macroeconomic pillars uh, which of course monetary financial stability and fiscal policy and development of a new framework for the development of economic and public policy focused on intergenerational well-being. Governor, very welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I hope you can hear me uh, clearly um, on on this. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you today. I want to take the opportunity this. Uh, this afternoon to talk about the central bank's mission to maintain monetary and financial stability while ensuring that the financial system operates in the interests of uh, consumers and the wider economy and the importance of inequality in our uh, considerations and the title of my remarks today which will be published is monetary policy regulation and inequality a tale of interlinkages and the use of the word interlinkage is deliberate uh, in two senses. Uh, first, uh, although I will talk a good deal about monetary policy and how it both impacts and is impacted by inequality, the interaction is wider than just monetary policy. And I'm thinking of our actions in the areas of uh, macroprudential policy as a means for building resilience to shocks, or uh, when we provide economic advice uh, to the government to promote macroeconomic stability and long-term growth, or when we implement our consumer protection framework, uh, which aims to ensure the best interests of consumers and of financial services are protected. Uh, these are all germane to inequality, and today I'll highlight some of our work in these areas in the context of the current levels of inflation that we are uh, experiencing. Second, what do I mean when I talk about interlinkages? And this is simply the idea that the transmission of our policies 
in terms of how they affect households, firms, and the economy are affected by the level of inequality itself. And this applies to policies that aim to build resilience in the face of shocks, as well as to monetary policy changes that can impact employment output and asset prices. Even though inequality remains outside central banks' price stability mandate, there is growing recognition that the distribution of income and wealth are relevant to the pass-through of monetary policy. And there's also evidence that monetary policy action and non-conventional monetary policies in particular could be impacting on inequality. So this gives you a flavor of the issues I want to discuss uh, this afternoon. But first, uh, let me give you some context and looking at the recent trends and some key inequality metrics. Since the 1980s, both income and wealth inequality, and it is important to bear these distinctions in mind, have increased in many advanced economies. For incomes, at least, Ireland is an exception as income inequality has not increased, but has actually fallen slightly since the 1980s. Although the top 10% of earners still earned almost a quarter of total income in 2019. In the United States, just before the pandemic, more than 45% of pre-tax income, i.e. before redistributive policies, went to the top 10% of earners, up from 34% in 1980. When we think of inequality within countries, the main factors driving increases in inequality in advanced economies include globalization, technological progress, and taxation. Globalization and technological progress have adversely affected the wages and employment of lower skilled labor, which declines in the progressiveness of the tax system in some countries, sorry, while declines in the progressiveness of the tax system in some countries has contributed to increases in post-tax inequality. Overall, therefore, the rise in income inequality has been driven mainly by structural policies and long-term uh, secular trends. Taking a more global perspective, that is across countries, global income inequality has actually decreased since the 1980s, mainly as a result of relatively stronger economic growth in developing countries when compared with developed countries. In most countries, the distribution of the household wealth tends to be much more concentrated than the distribution of income. And for Ireland, we know this from the data collected in the Household Finance and Consumption Survey, uh, which is a survey on household assets, debt and wealth, which has been a key part of our policy research and analysis since 2013, when the first survey was commissioned by uh, Patrick Honohan, one of my predecessors as governor of the Central Bank. And this survey and subsequent waves in 2018 and 2020, all of which have been carried out by the Central Statistics Office, shed further light on the evolution uh, of wealth inequality in Ireland. And building on this data and working with other Eurosystem central banks, we recently published new distributional wealth accounts, which allow for analysis of the wealth distribution of households at a higher quarterly frequency. And the data tells us that Irish households net wealth has increased significantly in recent years, while net wealth inequality also uh, declined. However, findings also point to a growing concentration of assets among wealthier households. 
between the second quarter of 2013 and the first quarter of this year, the collective net wealth of Irish households grew by 544 billion euros. The top 10% of wealthy households accounted for almost half of this growth, with the bottom 50% uh, accounting for 12%, with the remainder of the increase related to the middle 40% of households by wealth. Approximately 80% of the increase in net wealth for the middle 40% over this period can be attributed to increases in housing wealth, with the remainder a combination of growth in business wealth, deposits, and other financial assets. Housing wealth also represents a significant share, around 64% of the increase for the top 10%, though growing business wealth and financial assets are also important. With uh, high levels of ownership in Ireland, 70%, which is around the EU average, it is not surprising that changes in asset values um, and housing-related debt play an outsized role in driving wealth inequality trends in Ireland. Indeed, the fall in headline wealth inequality metrics since uh, 2013 can be largely attributed to the gradual decline in the proportion of households in negative equity uh, since then, both via uh, reducing debt, but also rising uh, house prices. Differences in the uh, home ownership rate can lead to differences in wealth inequality across countries. Uh, for example, wealth inequality, as measured by the Gini coefficient, tends to be lower in Ireland when compared with the likes of Germany and Austria, where homeownership rates are lower. Increasing household indebtedness is also one of the key reasons for the long-run increase in wealth inequality in Ireland over the last three decades. Inequality rose between 1987 and 2018 due in large part to households in the middle of the wealth distribution acquiring more debt in order to purchase housing. I mean, there are echoes here of Thomas Piketty's and, and others' arguments around the rise of inequality in developed countries and the related erosion of purchasing power, which in turn contributed to increased household indebtedness for consumption in the run-up to the financial crisis. Although the increase in debt uh, now, in this case, is more about acquiring an asset than maintaining consumption. Nonetheless, it's a key distributional issue for the central bank when we consider the resilience of households to shocks and the, in the design of our macro prudential measures to promote financial stability. As history has taught us, it's only often when the tide goes out that we see the vulnerabilities in relation to distributional imbalances that have been allowed to build up. Our borrower-based macro prudential measures, which limit the amounts uh, households can borrow, in relation to both the value of the property and their income are designed to strengthen the resilience of borrowers, lenders, and the economy overall. And our recent review of those measures reaffirmed our commitment to the tools as a means of guarding against very high levels of indebtedness and unsustainable lending. As we outlined in our first financial stability review of this year, this is back in June, household vulnerabilities are different to what we saw at the onset of the financial crisis in Ireland. Resilience is underpinned by debt levels that have fallen steadily over the last decade. 
an increasing reliance on longer term fixed rates that leaves fewer borrowers exposed to rate rises in the short term, as well as some households holding considerable savings built up during the pandemic. However, as we've highlighted in our research, these savings are likely to be unevenly distributed with more than half of savings concentrated in the top 30% of households by income. But we don't take uh, this resilience for granted, especially in the face of persistent shocks. In our ongoing analysis of household responses to high inflation and income variability, as well as to interest rate rises, will continue to highlight groups that are most vulnerable, allowing for appropriately targeted measures to be implemented. Let me now move on to price stability and monetary policy and how this interacts with inequality. Though central banks uh, can have an impact on the distribution of wealth and income over shorter horizons, over the longer run, their impact is likely to be small. As a tool uh, that is primarily aimed at tackling cyclical fluctuations, monetary policy is unlikely to be a sustained driver of structural inequality. We know that downturns can lay bare the different types of inequality that are lurking beneath, as I mentioned earlier, but the sources of inequality run deeper, and I believe are more structural in nature than they are cyclical. But this does not mean that as monetary policymakers, we should ignore it. And it's one of the key messages we heard from the public and representative groups when we conducted our own listening exercises as part of the ECB's 2021 strategy review. To the extent that monetary policy has significant redistributive effects, it will, of course, impact inequality, at least in the short term. But an equally, if not more important issue is how inequality can also impact monetary policy. In other words, how pre-existing levels of inequality, either in income and or wealth, impact how monetary policy is transmitted to households, firms, and overall economic activity. And there's been an explosion of research on this issue in recent years. Much of it focuses on how monetary policy changes, for example, increasing or decreasing interest rates, affects different types of households according to income, job type or wealth. When I talk about conventional monetary policy, um, if there are more households in society whose consumption is very sensitive to income changes, typically those with limited access to credit or fewer savings, then the transmission of monetary policy to the real economy tends to be stronger. Uh, our recent central bank uh, quarterly bulletin and article emphasized this issue by quantifying for the first time the joint distribution of income and wealth across Irish households. We estimated that between 6 and 15% of Irish households could be considered to be in a precarious position in relation to income risk, while also holding little, if any, in the way of savings buffers. All of this goes to show that portfolio compositions of different households matter for the transmission of policy. But for uh, macroeconomic and monetary policy, distributional levers are not just confined to income or wealth. As um, I've highlighted previously, um, the macroeconomic challenges from an aging society, um, I mean, the distribution of age cohorts across the population also matters. I think of this as the demographic channel for the effectiveness of monetary policy. As we know, populations around the world, especially in developed economies in Europe, uh, 
and the United States are aging. And if populations save more as they age, which is generally what we see in the data, then a greater stock of savings in the future as a result of older populations could blunt the effectiveness of monetary policy. The primary goal of monetary policy is to maintain price stability, which means preserving the purchasing power of the euro by ensuring low, stable and predictable prices. And the governing council of the ECB, consisting of the 19, soon to be 20, uh, national central bank governors and six members of the uh, executive board, has decided that the target of price stability is an annual rate of inflation of 2%. And we're clearly very far from this right now. Although nominal interest rates have been rising, monetary policy still has a way to go to restore price stability, which is a prerequisite for sustainable growth. Uh, and interest rates have been increasing, as we all know, for the first time in a decade, and they are now well out of negative territory, which is where, where they were back in June. The future direction of travel is also clear. We expect to raise policy rates further in order to sustainably achieve our 2% target over the medium term. I realize that uh, economic indicators point to a deterioration in the outlook for economic activity in the euro area, with growth projections from the ECB and other institutions being revised downward for 2023 and 2024. However, this slowdown in growth will not on its own be enough to ensure inflation returns to its target of 2% in the medium term. While maintaining price stability is our primary objective, we are also conscious of other interactions and side effects of our policy actions and take them into account when formulating policy. Indeed, as we reiterated following our 2021 strategy review, we base our decisions um, which include an evaluation of the proportionality of the decisions and the potential side effects on an integrated assessment of all factors, and we'll continue to do that. And while monetary policy has consequences for the entire economy, not every household will be affected in the same way. The effects can also vary according to which particular policy is being implemented. And here I want to make the distinction between changes in interest rates, sometimes labeled conventional monetary policy, and changes uh, in the central bank's balance sheet, which is sometimes labeled unconventional monetary policy. The direct effects of rate changes on income are relatively straightforward to understand. In the case of an increase in interest rates, the interest paid, for instance, on deposits will rise, increasing the financial income earned by households with savings, who are typically wealthier households, but also many retirees. On the other hand, those who have loans, especially on variable rates, and those on fixed rates once the fixation period expires, will see the repayments on their loans increase. And as a consequence, their disposable income will fall. This effectively results in a transfer of income from borrowers to savers, which has implications for inequality. And looking at the impact of, on wealth, when a central bank increases interest rates, asset prices typically decline reflecting the expected adverse effect of tighter monetary policy on the economy. With the rising cost of money, bond prices decline and their yields increase. And while house price growth slows as higher mortgage rates and a weaker economy discourage more borrowing and house purchases. Typically, only those at the very top of the wealth distribution are affected 
by changes in stock prices, although these have an impact on retirement savings as well. Meanwhile, the impact of movements in house prices often have an ambiguous effect on inequality, as it is households in the middle of the income and wealth distribution that generally own their home. More generally, the direct effects of changes in interest rates depend on the types of assets a household owns and if they're borrowed to accumulate them. Furthermore, the magnitude of these effects will depend on the relative and absolute size of each of these assets in a household's portfolio. And when looking at the, the impact through this narrow lens, falling rates are beneficial in reducing inequality, particularly income inequality in the short run, while raising rates can work against it. Quantitative easing, which is the purchase by the central bank of sovereign and other bonds on the secondary markets, works for the most part through its effect on asset prices, including housing and longer term interest rates by increasing the former and lowering the latter. As we know, increases in equity and bond prices tend to typically benefit wealthier households who are more likely to hold such assets. However, evidence also shows that the opposite end of income and wealth distribution also benefited from asset purchases as a consequence of increasing employment that benefits lower income households in particular. Higher levels of borrowing by households and firms led to higher consumer spending and investment with a positive effect on GDP and employment. And this is thought to have decreased income inequality as employment rises with uh, aggregate demand. And lower income households benefit disproportionately from cyclical employment expansions. For wealth inequality, the evidence is less conclusive. It is, um, excuse me, it is difficult to quantify the effects, but they might be U-shaped with the policy benefiting households at the very top due to rising asset prices, as well as at the very bottom due to increasing employment of the wealth distribution. However, we now find ourselves in a very different environment and the ECB, like many other central banks, is considering ways to reduce the size of its balance sheet. And it might be tempting to assume that the effects of reducing the size of the balance sheet will mirror the effects from increasing it, but there are some key differences. The primary difference now is the context. The current high inflation is having a very negative impact. Falling real incomes mean lower consumer spending as, as households reduce spending on non-essentials and divert more of their budget to items such as food and energy. For households that spend relatively more of their budget on items that are rising fastest, such as energy and food, the effect can be particularly acute, as we've shown in recent central bank research. As a result, inflation is often justifiably portrayed as a regressive tax. Indeed, within an environment of stable prices, it is easier for firms and households to plan for the future and for governments to invest in policies that promote well-being and support the purchasing power of households especially those of lower incomes. And by laying the foundations uh, for a more stable macroeconomic environment, monetary policy can help those policymakers that have the power to create the conditions to improve the conditions for the most vulnerable. 
And as I said in my letter to the Minister for Finance in advance of Budget uh, 2023, there is a role for fiscal policy in supporting those most vulnerable to the current higher rate of inflation. However, supports should be temporary, tailored and targeted to make the most of limited resources, but also to limit the risks of adding further to inflationary pressures. The current macroeconomic environment is unprecedented as we tighten monetary policy while facing a high probability of a global recession. There are costs to firms and households in terms of raising rates with adverse implications for inequality. However, these factors have to be offset against the costs of high inflation, which if left untreated in a timely and effective manner will have far greater negative macroeconomic consequences. And that's why we at the ECB cannot allow ourselves to deviate from our primary objective, which is price stability. Credibility is a key element of effective monetary policy. Uh, credibility and good communication go hand in hand. And I believe transparency, honesty and engagement uh, help to build credibility and to set expectations. Uh, and trusting the central bank's commitment to price stability and understanding exactly how it plans to go about achieving it influences the public's trust and financial markets uh, inflation expectations. And the lack of trust weakens the central bank and makes it vulnerable to political pressure. So central banks, like all institutions, need to build social capital. And uh, there are many definitions of that, but like, I like to think of social capital as the social connections, attitudes, and norms that contribute to societal well-being by promoting coordination and collaboration between people and groups in society. And trust is uh, stronger where social capital is strong. Central banks can help build social capital through their actions, but also through their communications. And in uncertain times, such as those we're living in today, this matters. The ECB will deliver on its mandate of price stability, and our credibility is demonstrated by our monetary policy actions that are consistent with reaching our inflation target and by communication that reiterates our objective and how we intend to achieve it. So let me conclude. The distribution of income and wealth is something that central banks need to pay close attention to, not least because it has policy consequences, as well as implications for social capital and the public's trust. Central banks need trust to succeed, and trust is stronger where social capital is strong. Social capital is an important determinant of a community's well-being alongside human capital, natural capital, and financial and physical capital, which I like to describe as our collective economic capital. And although central banks don't have the mandate or the tools to deal with societal concerns around income or wealth inequality, they can help build social capital through their actions and by continuing to focus on fundamentals. Successful economies need stable and sustainable macroeconomic frameworks and sound monetary policy that delivers predictable prices. And they also need stable and well-regulated financial systems and well-functioning markets. And at the central bank, we'll continue to focus on our core mandate of price stability, a stable financial system, and the protection of the consumer. At the end of the day, price stability means providing the macroeconomic platform for sustainable 
and long-term investment in education, health, housing, and ultimately being able to provide access to essential public services at reasonable cost and supporting the welfare of the people as a whole. Thank you very much. Governor, thank you very much for that. Um, and very interesting too. And as, as, as you know, we just have we, we've quite a considerable audience today. Just a couple of questions, if we could just put towards you that have come in on our, our Zoom function here. One here uh, asks, what are the best approaches dash policies to effectively tackle the six to 15 percent of population you see as being in a precarious position in relation to income risk while having little having little if anything in the way of saving buffers well i think um but part of the answer to that question is one of the last things i said which is that we need to get back to price stability so the the, the actions that the, you know, the ecb is taking were taking are essential um, because the people who are mostly affected by inflation uh, are the most vulnerable. And if we don't get on top of inflation, uh, things will get even worse than they are now. So I think number one is making sure that price stability um, uh, is there. I think the other issue for me uh, to answer that particular question is we need uh, policy that... Um, continues to support the economy as a whole. So these aren't levers necessarily that the central bank has. I mean, we have got uh, policies that, you know, we've got tools that try to ensure financial stability and we've got tools that try and protect consumers. But ultimately, um, what matters for that particular group of the population, um, and it matters for actually every group, um, is an economy that's functioning well that's actually employing people, that's educating the future workforce um, and actually operates sustainably. And I think the sustainable word, which tends to be overused at the moment, if you use it, tends to be read uh, or interpreted as meaning about climate change. For me, sustainability is a much bigger thing. It includes climate change, but it includes making sure that um, you're uh, not spending money you haven't got um, that if you are borrowing, and I'm talking about the, the nation now, I'm not talking about uh, individuals, if you are borrowing uh, as a sovereign, uh, that you actually use the money wisely, uh, that you uh, know that you'll be able to repay it, repay it, etc. I think long-term sustainability creates a platform that ultimately the whole community benefits. Yes. And as you know, our, our, our theme today, well-being, and we have a question here. In light of your experience in New Zealand, what would the governor recommend or suggest as a good pathway towards the introduction of a well-being budget in Ireland? Well, from my... Um, thank you to whoever asked that question. Um, because uh, I think what we did in New Zealand um, is worth studying. Uh, I'm delighted to see what uh, has been happening in Ireland already uh, in in, um, in this particular area. Uh, I'm obviously not directly involved, but I am a very, very interested observer. Um, I, I think, I mean, my what my New Zealand experience taught me is that um, it's a journey 
that takes time and patience. It requires focus and commitment. Um, and it needs to be seen um, across all public policy um, and not too narrowly. And uh, so I think one of the things to avoid, in my view, again, I'm just talking from my own experience, is um, putting uh, what, what I've observed in some other countries, and I'm not talking about Ireland, but in some other countries which have who've thought about this, is they've invested a lot in measuring well-being, and they've stopped there. And actually, I think being able to measure it, and actually, there's a huge, you know, issue about how you measure it because I think each country will have its own view as to what are the key indicators of well-being amongst their community. I don't think it's a common, necessarily a common set of criteria. Um, but I think once you've once you've decided for yourself as a country um, what are the key indicators of well-being, you then need to take the next step and start to create frameworks that ultimately are reflected in policy decisions, whether it's in education, whether it's in health, whether it's in macroeconomic policy, whether it's in uh, foreign direct investment, whatever it is, that they're all aligned to that. And I think what I've observed in um, elsewhere is that a lot of effort stops at the measurement. And actually, you've got to do more than that. And I think in New Zealand, that's what, uh, that's what we did. But it took us time. Um, and you do need sort of determination and focus um, and commitment over a number of years to uh, be able to deliver something. And can I ask you, do you detect here the type of societal, perhaps some political will uh, to drive that forward that informed that kind of approach in New Zealand? Well, I mean, I, um, I mean, the evidence I've seen is, I mean, my, the only evidence I've seen, I can only say yes, in the sense that um, the Department of the Taoiseach has led uh the work um i think it was in the program for government um uh, it's been led by the department of Taoiseach. but the evidence that i've seen is that we've started in ireland or started on this path and i can't tell you that i've seen evidence that people will abandon it um uh, but it's you know ultimately it is it's something that needs to become part of the public conversation. It does require, incidentally, and maybe this is an interesting point, it does require uh, a lot of long-term thinking um, and a commitment to long-term planning. And uh, I don't think Ireland is unusual. In New Zealand, it was, it was similar, um, which is that a lot of the political um, pressures um, inevitably tend to be shorter term. So you need institutions, and in, in New Zealand, I mean, I was fortunate enough to lead uh, one such institution. You need institutions who can carry on doing the work through different governments. Um, because there is no, there cannot be a quick, there's no quick fix to this, because if there had been, it would have been done. 
Um, but at the moment, I think what I've seen in Ireland is, is you know, I'd be positive. I'd be positive about what I've seen. Great. And with a question here from Michelle Murphy. Um, Governor, what contribution can monetary policy make towards sustainability, social, environmental and economic sustainability? And what key steps should be taken in an Irish context to ensure monetary policy is supportive of that sustainability? Um, I mean, I think the, um, the, the answer to that question really is continuing um, on the path that I think we're already on. I mean, we are part of the euro area. So when it comes to monetary policy, um, that is set for the euro area. And I've, my speech was primarily about what we're doing at the ECB because I'm a member of the governing council. Um, I think when it comes to, uh, you mentioned uh, when you introduced me that I led this review of... Um, New Zealand's macroeconomic pillars, and there were these three pillars. Um, I think, you know, monetary policy is one. The, the next one is financial stability. Uh, and obviously in Ireland, we had, you know, uh, the opposite of financial stability over a decade ago. But we are now in a much better position. Our financial system is much stronger. Um, households, as well as, you know, uh, banks are much more resilient than they were. So we've actually built that resilience and we saw the pandemic. Uh, the system actually worked pretty well through the pandemic. So I think that financial stability pillar uh, is strong. Um, now, you know, there's loads of new risks out there. And uh, next week, we're going to be publishing our second financial stability review of the year. And we're going to be talking about that. But um, maintaining a strong second pillar of financial stability, I think, is important. And I think we're on track to do that. The third uh, pillar is fiscal policy, and uh, which is what the government's in, in control of. And that means um, using your, uh, uh, your tax revenues wisely, borrowing wisely, and not spending um, unwisely and not borrowing unwisely. And my, certainly, um, I think the government in its uh, 2023 budget, well, I, I mentioned the letter I wrote to the minister um, and I was very pleased to see that one of the decisions uh, the, the minister made was to put um, uh, some uh, funds into, essentially into reserve. Um, and the borrowing, I mean, borrowing basically in Ireland, the, the, the government borrowing in Ireland is basically middle of the EU pack. So I think it's on a sustainable level. I think what we can't afford to do is be complacent about any of those three pillars. So they need continuous focus and um, uh, ongoing work. But I think we are we're building from a strong platform, um, to my mind. And I think sustainability, you know, economic sustainability, I think we're in a good place for it. I mean, I think the challenge, environmental sustainability is a challenge, uh, which obviously we've got COP27 happening right now. Uh, so it's, the, you know, it's, it's being discussed. And it's pretty clear that what we need, uh, there is action. I mean, central banks, uh, both in making sure 
that the institutions, we, whether they're banks or insurance companies or whatever, um, uh, are planning for the challenges of climate change to their balance sheets. Uh, certainly that's something we're doing. We're making sure that our monetary policy um, is supportive of uh, sustainability in the sense that our own asset purchases, we're looking to make sure we're, you know, we're not buying the wrong types of assets. Um, but it needs a recognition. I mean, I think environmental sustainability needs a recognition amongst all the key, well, amongst the whole community, but in particular amongst decision makers in the community, that action needs to happen sooner rather than later. Because I mean, one of the things I worry about is because we've got this target of net zero by 2050, uh, we, ri we risk communicating to everybody that climate change is coming and we've got to do something about it. Whereas actually climate change has arrived. It's already here. Uh, and what we're trying to do is not make it any worse. Um, so that we do need, I think monetary policy has a role to play, but actually it's a much, much bigger societal issue. Very much so. Before you go, I just I, I, I'm fascinating your, 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 your paper, Governor. And w one thing that struck me when you when you suggested in this country, as I understand, you're saying that inequality has fallen here since the 1980s, which seems to be in contrast with most, or certainly a lot, the major developed countries. Is that down? entirely to Ireland's development from perhaps being underdeveloped, coming up to being, you know, properly developed with more, more, most Western countries? Or is any of it attributable to long-term policies here? Or is it all just because we're no longer as poor as we used to be as a country? Well, I think it's a combination of, of, of many things, but I'll mention two. Firstly, depending on your historical perspective, um, certainly, um, you know, if you take Fintan O'Toole's uh, recent, uh, relatively recent autobiographical autobiography, um, uh, you know, he, he covers essentially the span of years when it was decided to open up the economy. I mean, you know, Ken Whitaker's one of my predecessors as governor of the Central Bank and Ireland's man of the century, uh, I think. Um, you know, that, that decision back in the early 60s under uh, uh, Sean Lavasse's the Taoiseach to open up the economy, the decision to join the European economic community 50 years ago, um, I think those are pretty fundamental um, moments that, that have changed uh, the whole community's and the whole economies and, and I, you know, economy and community are words that I deliberately use um, together here. Um, it created an incredible platform for our prosperity. What um, I also think, and this is quite important uh, when you talk about, when you look at inequality in itself and you get into things like Gini coefficients and all the rest of it, the fact is Ireland's um, tax and social security, the, 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 um, uh, the tax and, and social policies have an effect of reducing inequality. So there's a, you know, there's action that 
the governments, plural, have taken to um, address inequality directly. So those, I mean, I think those are two uh, big things that have happened um, since certainly the 1980s, um, when we started to see the beginning. I mean, it happened a bit later, um, comprehensively, but the beginning of uh, the benefits of, of, you know, essentially joining the global economy. Um, that decision that was taken back in uh, in, in, in the early 60s. I mean, I think uh, one of the interesting lessons that we've learned is that even though you you make, I, th I think, you know, very wise um, and correct decisions, you can also get things wrong. So the financial crisis, we got things wrong, but we have fixed those. And I think... Another important thing that certainly I'm observing in Ireland, uh, and just take the evidence of the last decade, is that we learnt lessons and we learnt them quickly and we've applied them. And I think that helps to sort of create the right sort of um, platform of stability that ultimately uh, economies need, communities need for their medium to long-term well-being. Governor, thank you very much for joining us today and for a very enlightening paper informing um, our, um, our theme of well-being at today's Social Policy Conference. Thank you very much. I hope you have a good uh, rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks, Governor. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, any conversations that you would like us to have, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.